This is part two of our episode on the Methuen Drama Book of Trans Plays, and we're continuing our conversation with Liana Keyes, Lindsay Mantone, and Angela Farschiller. In this episode, we discuss the importance of studying the work of trans artists, trans theater as a form of activism, and what the editors hoped to achieve with this collection. Take a listen. Team, do you remember, I think it was a journal article that was basically a conversation between two folks talking about trans theory that we found so inspirational at the beginning. I'm trying to find it in my folder right now. I remember this article. I don't remember the title of it though. I know, and I'm so annoyed because it was so good. It was so good. One of the arguments was basically there is no trans theory. There is only queer theory that people have tried to sort of wrestle into something like trans theory, but it starts so much with queer theory and that is different. Trans theory should it exist, should come more organically and be more directly focused on trans life. And so when it borrows so heavily or grows out of something else, namely queer theory, it's never its own thing. And so therefore, what we have right now, you can't even call trans theory, which is a fascinating argument and was made very persuasively in this article. Yeah, I'm really excited about For me personally, I love working with students. I work with students all the time as a producer. One of the things that I think is going to be so cool about this is that if you're a student who's coming to this book and you want to read about people who are very much like you, you can read How to Clean Your Room and Remember All Your Trauma by Jay Chavez and have a great experience of that. And then you can go and read The Critical Introduction by Finn Lefebvre. And then you can go and say, oh, okay, these two things were done in a way that was really approachable to me. What else is in here? that can then be a bridge into thinking more critically and theoretically about things now that I've done something that felt more approachable to me. Because that play specifically is about a college student going through some stuff which many trans and queer and questioning students in a college would experience. That play is also really, really cool if you are not someone who is in college. That's another one of our puppet plays. So many cool design opportunities in that play. The Night Sky is basically a character. That is a show that is going to do so well. But that these plays play are just won oh, wait, an award Lindsay, at KCACTF, which stands for the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. That's it. <laughs> yes, I nailed it. So my region of that, which is the Pacific Northwest region, just produced How to Clean Your Room and it won an award from the festival. I would even say this. I mean, that's another motivational factor that we really thought about and wanted to create a platform for as we were thinking about putting together this anthology, that not only that there is kind of a first step, one-stop shop kind of place for people to go to when they're looking for trans plays by trans playwrights, but also hoping that artistic directors will pick up this book and think about, let's produce more work by trans artists. Let's hire more trans directors. Let's hire more trans performers. This will happen across college campuses, in regional theaters. Who knows? Maybe on Broadway. But also to give more opportunity to trans artists. I feel like we had a motivation underneath the book to create a very broad platform for these artists and for these works to be able to have entryway into classrooms, theater spaces, laboratories, reading groups, all kinds of different spaces. Yeah, this is something that we talk about in the introduction, but I really do want to pull out here because it is so important. The growing trans ecosystem. Right now, we're in this sort of vicious cycle where 
because there are not that many plays that are specifically trans, trans directors and trans artists don't get as many opportunities to hone their craft and to make art. Trans artists are expected to come to the work with a certain level of expertise and experience that we aren't supported by institutions in reaching. Right now, if you're a trans actor looking for work, there's a few trans plays that are specifically speaking to you. But a lot of the times you're going to get cast as like a gender neutral role in a Shakespeare adaptation. We want to have work that is opportunities for trans artists to get work, to get paid, to be able to make their living doing this. So as more plays by and about us are being done, then we're gaining exposure, we are gaining resume lines, we are gaining connections. If you're a theater who wants to do a trans play, quote unquote, like that's our big goal, we're going to do a trans play in the spring, then you're like, oh, actually, these artists who I would never have considered to be in my kitchen sink drama in the fall, actually, that person was really cool. And not only can I see casting them in like other plays in like my Shakespeare adaptation, actually, let me just like throw them into next to normal. Let me just throw them into my big show that I'm going to be doing. One of the things that we do in this anthology is that each play has a casting policy that's part of the character descriptions and setting. But one of the things is the casting policy because many of our playwrights have different approaches to how the characters should be cast. In my specific case, the casting policy that I wrote is no one in this play needs to be white or pretty or skinny. Please cast responsibly because I'm interested in flexible approaches to casting in my specific play because the play itself has been informed by the ways that it has been cast. In the three major workshops that I've done of this play, it very often is that the lead character, Rue, or the titular character, Rue, has several times now been played by uh, Southeast Asian actors. That's not written into the script. It just happened to go that way. And I was like, oh, okay, this is an interesting history. And simultaneously, I recognize that for like many casting directors, if you say, hey, cast a South Asian trans woman in this role, they're going to be like, well, I can't do that play. Yeet. And it's just going to go out of the season consideration pile. So for me, the like, please cast responsibly note that I have in there gives flexibility for people to cast this with different races and different gender identities in much the same way that you would cast a Shakespeare play, which is one of the things that I really like about people who do Shakespeare now is that you can tell different stories and give different contexts just with casting, which I'm super interested in. But part of what I really like about how that has impacted my play, the interesting casting, is that every single production of this play that has happened, at least one actor in the cast has ended up coming out as trans during or after the process of producing it. I'm not going to say that that's a requirement for any productions, <laughs> but it's a delightful history that I actually honor because in the casting notices, I actually have a note that says, hey, this role is written for a character who uses she, her pronouns. But if you decide that you want to play this character non-binary and use they, them, here's how you do it. Here are the specific lines you change. Here are how different people approach that. And so it's important to me to honor what the actual casting process is like and that while there are challenges for anyone who's looking to produce any of these plays in terms of who you're looking at, if you expand your definition of who you're looking for in a casting process or a directing process or a designer process, there's actually so many cool trans artists that you can bring into your fold. 
Absolutely. And I would say that if the playwrights weren't already doing that, it was definitely a question that we put on the table as a request for them to do, because it's such an important part of the work. Leanna, I'm so glad that you brought up the casting policies that we put on every play here in the book, but also your own for Dr. Voynich. I've taught Dr. Voynich every semester that I teach play reading. I teach that class every year. And that one line at the top of the play, no one in this play needs to be white or pretty or skinny, please cast responsibly, brings so many of my students to tears when they first read this play and they first read this line. Because so many of my students are not white, do not feel perhaps conventionally pretty, are not skinny. And just seeing those words on a page is so meaningful to them. Because let's be real, the tradition of theater in this country, it's pretty boring in the sense that like most of it is white and skinny and pretty. And that's just not reality and not many people's experiences. So anyway, I just wanted to say that line is one of my favorite lines about your whole play. And it's before you even get to the play itself. And I would also say cisgendered as well. In thinking about for us, the importance of this work, it is coming out in a country that is in many ways anti-trans. When we look across the country and we look at laws that are being coming up for legislation in many different states across the country, including the state that I live in, Georgia, you see so much anti-trans aggression happening. And so I think this book that centers that experience, centers those voices, is actually kind of radical coming out in this kind of environment. I was thinking about that when you guys were talking about this. This is actually so fascinating to me. Even that opening line is like very emotional to me because like, as you said, Lindsay, every institution in this country, you can just safely assume has been barred from pretty much everybody who isn't a wealthy, attractive, cis white person. And I don't know, what is the experience of putting out this anthology when there's legislation barring trans people from accessing health care when there's an inordinate amount of violence happening against trans women, especially black trans women? Do you see your scholarship and this theater as a form of activism in the face of all of this violence against trans people? I think that it can be. I think that there are ways to produce these plays that are deeply ethical and rooted in making material conditions better for trans people. For example, the most recent production of this play was done at a theater company called Uprising Theater Company in Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is led by Shannon T.L. Kearns, who is wonderful. And that theater company specifically works with community organizations to improve conditions. Like if you're an audience member coming to see this play at that theater company, when you walk through the lobby, you are first going to be greeted by a community partner who is doing actual on the ground, direct support or community organizing to improve conditions for marginalized people. That theater company also cast trans people as roles that were not trans. And so we were able to get money in the pockets of trans artists, which of course makes them safer, which of course makes them more able to live fully realized lives. That to me was a deeply ethical way to produce that play. If you're someone who is thinking about producing one of these plays and 
you think that all you can do is rustle up like a $50 stipend for a week long rehearsal process and then do an unstaged reading. That to me is not a fully ethical way to do this. And actually what you're asking of the trans artists can be harmful. In the context of the most coordinated, most visible anti-trans period in American history, which is taking notes from what is happening in Great Britain right now, where it is functionally impossible for many people to transition. And there is daily, weekly anti-trans content in newspapers, in the news circuits. In that context, when you're looking at these plays and doing these plays and talking about these plays, you always, always, always need to keep in mind the material impact on trans artists, on trans audience members, on trans performers, directors, playwrights, and make sure that you are doing it in a way that is equitable, that gives agency to trans artists and improves their material conditions. And I would like to- Because otherwise, like, why the heck are you doing this? uh, From the academic side of things and say, we as editors got a very, very, very small stipend to put this book together, very small. But I really appreciate the way that Bloomsbury set up the contracts here because the playwrights get royalties for every copy of this book that is sold. And that's what we wanted as editors. That dynamic financially really appealed to us. And so for instructors out there who might assign this book to students, don't do the thing where you just scan it to a PDF and share it with your students. Ask them to buy the book because then everyone is supporting the playwrights in this book. Because every time someone buys this book, the playwrights whose plays make up the book, they get a little bit of money. Or buy Um, the book for them. Yes. If you have the means. That's also a thing one could do. Yeah, you've already kind of touched upon this, thinking about whether or not a play can improve the material conditions of the trans people producing the play and the trans people watching the plays. But I'm also curious, when you are translating these plays from page to theater, what are some of the other sort of accessibility challenges that you have to consider when you're producing them? And I'm thinking about disability rights, but also affordability, like you just mentioned this, Lindsay. I mean, should we expect our students who are maybe from working class context to be able to afford the plays? Do they have access to theater in their schools and neighborhoods? Have those challenges propped up for you a lot? Look, a lot of people who teach make very little money, right? Most instructors in the United States now are contingent faculty. So that means that they probably are not in a position to buy the book for their students, alas. And obviously, that would be true of people in K-12 education systems because the United States doesn't pay teachers. But I would say that libraries are a great avenue, actually. Libraries usually have budgets. And I'm talking now about public libraries, school libraries, university libraries. So everybody put in requests for all the libraries you associate with to buy this. And then they can keep it on the shelves. And those library purchases will support the playwrights whose work is in the book. And also then make the texts more available to people who might not be able to afford the book on their own. Can I jump in with a little bit of a hot take? Here's my at least spicy take, maybe not fully hot. My take is that there are so many plays that are part of the canon or are by non-marginalized playwrights that are held to such lower standards than plays by marginalized playwrights. And this is something that you see a lot in the discourse around queer movies, where 
if something isn't wrapped up with a neat bow and like everyone doesn't end up fully happy, then it's like, oh, that was like negative representation. Actually, it's a little strange, I think, to put, oh, these trans plays must have like a perfect little bow on them and must be all of these things that we would never hold Tennessee Williams to or so many playwrights in the past whose work gets done and done and done and done and done are held to different standards. Now, I also think that in producing some of these plays, some of the questions that you're asking about are actually built into it. Like the Betterment Society, which is in this anthology, has characters who are disabled. That's actually a huge part of the text of the play. So actually, like by doing that play and doing it ethically, you are already building in a challenge to the traditional accessibility that comes in theater. I kind of buy your hot take. I take what you're saying. I um, myself have like an affinity. I think about this a lot in terms of like how womanhood is portrayed. And I agree that because we have just less stories available to us, there the onus falls on marginalized people to be held to a higher standard to tell a story about perfect womanhood. And I actually think I'm just using that as an example, but I actually think it's very <laughs> radical to like be able to tell stories about mm-hmm. mediocre women or even unlikable women or really disgusting women. Like I love that shit because I really take your point, Liana, that it's just really frustrating that it always has to be wrapped up in a little bow when we have so many kind of scummy cis men getting to tell stories and like really not having to consider these things in the same way. So yes, I accept your hot take. And I also think as artists, part of our work is exploring the great spectrum and depth of the human experience. And not all of those experiences have tight bows on them or little buttons at the end of them. And so I think it's really, if part of our job is to unpack and reveal the human experience, this is doing just that. I'm way more interested in messy stories than I am in clean ones. Me too, because I don't know. I think that we all, especially in like an American context, kind of crave resolution. And that's just not how life works. That's certainly not how life is reflected at us right now. Everything is messy. Everything is falling apart. I kind of just, I want to see that reflected back at me in an honest way. I'm curious. I don't know how many conversations you've already had about your anthology, but I'm wondering if there's a question you wish you had been asked already about this collection that hasn't come up yet. Oh, Liana, what do you think about whether these plays are done or not? (laughs) Oh, thank you, Liana. Something that I think is probably going to be true about these plays is that because we have situations where some of these plays at the time of submission had not really been done, all the way up to has been reviewed in the New York Times, I think likely these plays may be different if you were to see them being done on stage 10 years from now, as opposed to reading it in the book Mm -hmm. this year. And that to me is super interesting, the ongoing developmental process that in putting together this anthology, we were not just looking for plays that are fully cooked. I like plays that are still in the oven. I texted Lindsay a couple months ago at midnight plus being like, oh my God, I just came up with the best thing about Voynich and I can't put it in because it's already in the goddamn book. (laughs) So I'm interested in that this is, quote unquote, it's on the page, it's done. No, 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 no. These plays are still evolving and our understanding of them will evolve and the ways that they're cast will evolve and the ways they're produced and designed are going to evolve. And I'm super excited to see as this book gets into people's hands, what parts of it jump out for them as areas to explore and collaborate on and 
get in touch with the playwrights about. I love coming into classrooms and talking about this play, my play, and any of these plays really with students. I would be delighted if we could ever get a panel together with all eight playwrights just to like talk about, I mean, that sounds like chaos, but it would be super fun if we could pull it off. And I think the playwrights are excited too. Well, you are speaking as a playwright, but I also think the other playwrights are also very excited for the book to get into many hands who are thinking about producing or teaching in different kinds of ways and really wanting to be in conversation with these works, that they're not devoid from the playwright, but actually that that is part of the package or part of the potential experience with these works. Yeah, the book is a starting point. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that feels really radical to me that on the one hand, just the plays seem so fluid that I think it's really beautiful that you let the casting sort of shape the storytelling that's happening and that it's so fluid and that the plays are constantly evolving. And I, I really love this idea of it being unfinished as well. Kind of goes against the whole like, capitalist grain in a way to have resolution, to have finality, to have a single answer to such a vast range of experiences. And I like that you give it the power to to sort of transform, to answer to the needs and desires of the people that are setting out to put on the play and that it's more of a collaboration, that there's just something really radical about that to me. Yeah. And like, I'm so excited now that this is out there, people are going to be like, oh, this is cool. We should do that again. And so hopefully that there are more trans anthologies that may have some of the same playwrights, may have new playwrights. There's going to be so much conversation around what trans representation can and should look like. I cannot wait to see how this book changes the conversation and changes things for the artists involved. And I love the way just thinking about, of course, this is not the end all be all, right? There are plenty of playwrights that we were like, oh, we would love to, but we only have a certain number of pages to be able to kind of divvy up the work. And so hopefully it will make people ask more questions about commissioning more work, about where are other trans voices that weren't included inside of this work? Because there are a lot of trans playwrights out there. And I think this book might also be a stepping stone to a curiosity to really unpack and really put on and put forward and elevate these voices in ways that they haven't been elevated before. I think this is just a starting point in terms of published anthologies of trans plays. I hope that there are many more. And I'm excited to see this work produced. I'm excited for theaters to get in there. My hope is that it's not just that there's a season planner who's like, okay, and then we've got the April gay slot. Oh, well, we could do a trans play there this year. But that it's more inclusive and holistic than that and not tokenized in that sense but that we really start to see a lot more trans theater being produced in ethical ways with trans designers and directors and dramaturgs. I don't think we've talked about trans dramaturgs as a thing we need more of, but definitely we do. I'm just excited for what this book opens up for theater. Yes. Oh my God. Having trans collaborators is such a huge difference. I'll tell one last anecdote and then I'll be quiet. But once upon a time, I was invited to like a sort of final rehearsal for one of my other plays. And a question came up around a specific moment between two trans characters. And I was taking a deep breath being like, okay, let me like figure out how to talk about this. And then I reevaluated who was in the room. And I was like, oh, wait, everyone in this room is trans. Both of the actors, the director and me, we are the only ones here and we are all trans. And suddenly I was like, oh, I don't have to like explain this moment. Instead, I could actually tell the full truth about this moment and how I think about it. 
the room and the conversations in the art is so much more free and open and interesting when you cultivate a room that has not just the trans performer in the trans role, quote unquote, but actually everyone working on it or so many people of the people working on it can tell their full truths in the room, which makes the art so much deeper. More of that. Yes, please. Yes, please. (laughs) Honestly, I love ending on that kind of intrepid question mark. I'm also just so excited to see how these plays evolve. And as you've all been saying, you're laying down the groundwork to create all these new opportunities for even more trans people to speak their truth. And hopefully that propels the conversation forward to having even wider conversations about the trans experience and excited to see like what this looks like in 10 years. And I want to thank all of you for coming on to the show and kind of talking about the multiple layers of considerations that go into an anthology, be it on the production end, on the writing end, on the acting end. And thank you so much. And I'd just like to add that this work really sits upon the shoulders of so many people who have endeavored, who have worked, who have fought, who have been out in the streets, who have produced theater out of no way, so that when we went to the publisher, they could say, this is a great idea. Let's do this. And that definitely would not have been able to happen without it resting on the shoulders of so many people who came before. So I just really want to also put that out there as well. Rebecca, thank you so much for hosting. Thank you for letting us really lead this conversation and for just talking about what matters to us. Thank you just so much for giving us this platform. Yes, lots of gratitude. Anytime. I can't wait to tell all of my friends when these plays do finally come out. I hope that one of them is coming on in New York at some point when the world opens up. Yes! I would love to see your play, Liana, and all the other plays that are in the anthology. I hope that what Lindsay was talking about comes to fruition, these sort of like regional plays that come on. I'll definitely be a very eager audience member. (laughs) 